Thank you, David. Uh, it's always exciting for us to get to come down here and see the growth, the just what God is doing with this body of believers down here at Covenant Grace. And we were laughing a little bit earlier because I would, would mess up the name because I keep wanting to say Grace Reformed. And then I look back and there's a giant sign that says Zion Christian Academy, but we're Covenant Grace here and there's a lot of things. So if I misspeak on something regarding this title of the church today, please give me a little bit of grace. Uh, but it is great to come down here. Uh, as you've probably known, if you've been here a while, we will send somebody down here at least once a month to administer communion because, as David mentioned, we, we are still serving as Patrick's elders as well, and we want to know you as best we can, which becomes difficult when we're in two different cities and two different congregations. And then to be able to come and fill in for Patrick uh, and do a full message is, is also a huge blessing uh, that we're... That you sh- I used to get really nervous uh, when I would do this, but now I just get excited to come down and share God's word uh, with believers. And having this church plant, I just think you guys should know that this is super special. Like we just celebrated our five years as a church at Grace Reformed, uh, and you guys are are growing and having a success is a weird word, but it's just it's been amazing to see that a lot of the, the early hiccups that we had have sort of been avoided here and so it's uh, we're just grateful for that and grateful for Patrick and David and their leadership down here and we're also looking forward to having the men's retreat because as I mentioned we don't get to fellowship with each other enough Uh, so that'll be a good way for you guys to come and and get to know some of the elders down there Uh, this morning we're going to be in 2nd Corinthians we're going to start out there we're going to take a little journey a few other verses there, but that's where we're going to start out. So if you want to go ahead and turn to the verse that's listed in your bulletins in chapter 5, verses 17 through 21, and I will just start out by reading it and then we'll dive in. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God for our sake. He made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Paul writes, we are reconciled to God through Christ. This is not the only place that we see this concept of reconciliation throughout Scripture. He also uses this terminology in Romans and uh, other places. So what does this mean to be reconciled? Here we think of reconciling, reconciliation as a mutual agreement between two parties. And if you and I have some sort of disagreement or there's some sort of rift between us, we may seek reconciliation. An estranged husband and wife may reconcile with each other or they may go their separate ways due to irreconcilable differences. So this is a term we're familiar with. But in these examples, there's something required of both parties. Both sides of these conflicts must bring something to the table in order to gain this reconciliation. Now officially, if you go to Webster, reconciliation can be defined in three separate ways. One is the restoration of friendly relations, which is sort of what we just mentioned. 
Secondly is the act of making one view or belief compatible with another. And the third is the act of making financial accounts consistent. The word Paul uses in Corinthians is actually very similar. It has two of the same definitions. The focus on biblical reconciliation is the first and third definitions of the ones we just read. It is seen as a return to favor or being received into favor. And it also has the financial component as well as it can mean the business of money changers and the exchanging of equivalent values. So if we look at this definition, we look at our definition, we start to develop some issues if you look at number two in the Webster version that making one view compatible with one another. And even in the money changer definition, we see there's room for some sort of leeway as you could make an argument as to what exactly is an equivalent value. So you think that as far as something as serious as reconciliation to God for our sins, that we would know what the standard would and should be in order to be able to attain some sort of equivalent value. And we do. Paul actually makes it clear earlier in 2 Corinthians. Back up to chapter 3, Paul is going to write this in verses 1 through 6 of 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. Not the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So let's take a moment and be reminded of what was going on in the Corinthians church at the time. Paul's first letter to the Corinthians was aimed specifically at correcting certain divisions which were being created in the church. A hierarchy had formed amongst church members. Believers were classifying themselves according to their pride in their own accomplishments, or probably even more accurate, according to the accomplishments of others. This was in 1 Corinthians, the section where Paul writes, and he's addressing people that were saying, I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas. And they took great pride in which teacher they from which they feel they received their main instruction. Now this might sound a little familiar in this day and age. I won't name any names of any other pastors because there are probably some in this room that would hold any name that I might mention dear. And to be sure, if I were to mention famous, prominent pastors, there are men that I have actually read that have advanced my understanding of the gospel. So I don't want to drop any names of who might be the modern-day Cephas's or Apollos's But I will say that I've seen congregations, I've seen congregants walk out the door of congregations because the man in the pulpit didn't sound enough like their favorite pastor. You can fill in the blank. And don't do that today if I don't sound enough like Patrick. He will be back. I'm just a guest. But if you do judge me and you I want you to judge me or anyone who may fill this role in Patrick's absence or anybody that you may bring on his staff, by whether or not we offered you Christ and not whether or not we sounded like somebody from a podcast you might like. If we don't offer you Christ, what is the other option? 
we can give you one of two things. We can give you the gospel of Jesus Christ or we can give you the law. Those are the two options. Now let's get back to the point I was, I was on before we get sidetracked. And let's look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3. He says, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? I apologize, I believe I said 2 Corinthians earlier whenever I told you to turn there. So if you got confused, uh, we're in 1 Corinthians. So I told you we're going to be making some, a little journey. So Paul says, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? And you can see by his words that he's cautioning them against falling into the same trap where he wrote to them previously. I'm sorry, no, I did get that right. It's 2 Corinthians. I'm confusing everybody. But he's in 2 Corinthians. He's referring to 1 Corinthians. That's where my notes got all messed up. But he's cautioning them against falling into that trap from 1 Corinthians. And he says, do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. So he's taking this concept of a letter of recommendation, specifically just the letter, and he's going to morph it from a correspondence, as in an actual letter the way we would understand it, or as an epistle, if you will, because that's what we call the letters of Paul and the apostles. And he's going to morph that understanding of a letter into a representation of the law. He says, you are our letter, like letter, letter. Because when the church is functioning properly, non-believers can see the change and they can testify without even being in the congregation that something is different about the way they act and they treat each other. Paul says it is the work of Christ. Furthermore, he says it is from the Holy Spirit. And here is where he makes the transition from the letter letter to the letter of the law in this passage. He says this letter is not written with ink, but written with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on human hearts. So the reference, obviously, of written on tablets of stone is what? It's the law of Moses. It's the Ten Commandments. So now he's making that transition from the law of Moses to the letter of the law, and now he's using letter to refer to uh, the Holy Spirit. So let's see where he goes. He says, such is the confidence that we have through Christ towards God. Not that we're sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So are we now transformed by the law or by the power of the Holy Spirit? Paul is clear. The letter kills and the Spirit gives life. So look at the next section beginning in verse 7. Now if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, how much more will what is permanent have glory? Look at what he calls the law. He calls the law the ministry of death. The law condemns sinners. And Paul is reminding the Corinthian church of this. 
Ministry of death sounds pretty negative, but it's important to realize here that Paul is not diminishing the importance of the law. On the contrary, he is putting the law in its rightful high place. He calls it glorious. He makes reference to Moses' first receiving of the law and how the Israelites could not even look upon him when he came down on Mount Sinai. So let's go back and take a look at that for a moment. And this is a lot of moving around, I know. But remember, we are looking into the concept of reconciliation. And if we are received or restored into favor via some transactional aspect, like money changers exchanging equal values, it's important to know the value that must be reached in order to be reconciled to God. In Exodus chapter 34, the law is given to Moses from God himself. Moses goes up on Mount Sinai, and as God is explaining his law, Moses is instructed to bring two stone tablets. So he was in the presence of the Lord 40 days and nights, listening and inscribing the words on stone tablets. And he's up there chiseling away. In the movie, if you saw that with Charlton Heston, a lightning bolt just came out of the cloud and it did all the writing for him, which is not exactly how that went down. Moses was up there putting in work. So he was up there in the presence of God receiving this law for quite some time. And when he returned to the Israelites, he appeared to be glowing and they were afraid because he had this visage about him that they'd never seen before because he was in the presence of a holy God and he was carrying God's perfect law. So in that passage in verse 29, now it was so when Moses came down from Mount Sinai and the two tablets of the testimony were in his hand when he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone while he talked with him. So when Aaron and all of the children saw him, behold, the skin of his face shone and they were afraid to come near him. Then Moses called to them and Aaron and all the rulers of the congregation returned to him and Moses talked with them. And afterward, the children of Israel came near and he gave them as commandments all the Lord had spoken with him on Mount Sinai. This is what Paul is referring to in chapter 3, verse 7, when he says the ministry of death came with such glory. They were afraid to look upon him. This creates a problem that has plagued man since the beginning, and that is that man will fall short of fulfilling the perfect law of God. God's law is perfection, and we see Paul explain it as glorious, even while calling it the ministry of death. And we see the reference from Exodus when the law was given to Moses originally, so we know where Paul is coming from, and that he didn't just make this up. Paul would not often just make claims without giving some sort of background. He knew his scripture. He knew his history. So God's law demanded then, and still does demand absolute perfection from God's children. Paul calls it the ministry of death. Why? Well, where sin exists, there must be a penalty. We know the wages of sin is death. Paul tells us this in Romans. So where sin exists, there's a penalty of death, and that brings us into the sacrificial system in the Old Testament. We started this whole thing talking about reconciliation. Remember the definition that involved the money changers? Well, the concept there is the exchange of foreign currency. If I give you X amount of U.S. dollars, then you in return are going to give me X amount of French francs, which actually doesn't exist anymore. I want to see who's still paying attention and with me. The problem with the law is that it introduced the concept that sin had to be punished. And so culture couldn't simply go on around killing everyone who sinned. That would get bloody really quick. Romans tells us that we would mean we would all must die. 
So there has to be a substitute. And in that day, you would bring a sacrifice to the priest. You would bring a lamb. And in front of the priest, you would lay your hands on the head of this lamb as you confessed your sins. And this action would symbolically transfer your sin into the innocent lamb who would then be ceremoniously killed in order to punish the sin. The bringer of the sacrifice would then leave being declared righteous based on the sacrifice of the lamb. Also, sometimes we hear of this and we don't take into consideration the gravity of these sacrifices for the believers at the time. The process itself would have had a profound impact on the individual bringing the sacrifice. We hunt for sport today. There might be some hunters in the crowd. We're in, we're in uh, Murray County. I know that happens. I never have hunted myself. I'm not against it. I grew up in a rural part of West Tennessee where all my friends did. Uh, I don't, for some reason, I never got into it. Uh, but the livestock owned by the citizens those days would have been really precious. So it's a way to feed and clothe their families. The, the impact that we have on killing animals sometimes can be diminished in our minds so we don't realize what it would have had then uh, because of the way our culture is. But this was used to provide resources for them. They could provide milk and wool. It was renewable. And then every now and then, they might have to have one butchered for meat. So the livestock were actually really well cared for because this was precious to them. And the lamb was the most innocent of all of this. It was a baby. The wool was not yet long enough to become dirty and matted the way that happens when older sheep are not shorn properly. And they show very little attitude, I presume. And, you know, you look at me and think, well, it's a sheep. You know, how much attitude can a sheep show? And, uh, you know, I'll tell you, I've actually raised sheep when I was younger. And, and the older ones can get a little bit ornery. We had... This one ram, his name was Sam, and he was terrifying. He was huge, and my dad wouldn't let us go near him because he was worried that he might injure one of us uh, as a kid. So they can, they can get a little ornate. Now, they're not sinful. Sheep don't have souls, but I'm just saying that the lambs would have been a little bit easier and docile because there's a reason to kill Sam. There's no reason to kill this baby. So losing this sheep was not just a token ceremony so the p- participant could walk away absolved. There was a serious loss involved And not only that, but the death itself would have been pretty brutal. There was no quick disposition of the animal. It was not like in old slaughterhouses where they had the air gun and the... I won't go into that. We didn't dismiss the children. We're not going to talk about how some of the graphic ways you could bring about death to an animal. But a lot of that stuff didn't exist then. There were no firearms or other technology that would make the death quick and painless. There were blades. There were things that you had to actually get in there. It would have been graphic. There would have been sounds and sights and smells. And all of this would have been a reminder to the sinner of the price that must be paid in order to absolve them of their violations of God's law. So, the sinner brings the lamb. The sins are ceremoniously transferred to the lamb. And that is offered as a payment. There's wrath owed to sin. The sin the transferred animal, and now the believer is acceptable because an item of equal value has been punished. There's reconciliation of the debt. But these sacrifices were not once for all sacrifices. They were pretty much once for all the sins that you've committed since the last time we killed a baby sheep. They were recurring. Even on the great day of sacrifice, Yom Kippur, it was an annual event. There was nothing that could remove the stain of sin permanently from their hearts. Only reminders and foreshadowing of what was to come 
who would render this system obsolete. So the law is perfect, must be fulfilled. Moses came down with the Ten Commandments, with this glorious visage that was frightening to the Israelites, and they understood how important it was to keep the law. However, as the years go by, the initial issuance of the law becomes more and more distant, and the weight of the law fades. You won't have as many eyewitnesses still around that have been able to see it. There are going to be people who don't hear the stories often from their grandparents, from their grandparents and great-grandparents, and the reverence is going to fade, and you end up with the need for Jesus to go in in the Sermon on the Mount and address the fact that the law had been adjusted from its true and original meaning in order to suit those who stood at the top of the religious hierarchy. The Pharisees were tweaking God's law so they could say that they'd never broken it. We won't turn there because I think most people are familiar with it, but you had the, I've never murdered, I've never committed adultery, I'm divorced, but I did it legally through a certificate, so it's not a violation. Yes, I swore an oath to you to complete this task, but I swore it by the moon, and there's no moon tonight, it's a new moon, so that's invalid right now. All of this was to make their actions acceptable, and they could claim that they had not violated the law. So Jesus comes in and puts it back in its rightful place. Now, we do this with man-made laws, too, by the way. Have you ever gotten a speeding ticket and relayed that story to a friend? And you said, uh, with great disgust, I was only doing 10 over, as though we have some right to do 10 miles an hour over the speed limit. Uh, for those of you that don't know me, I'm in law enforcement, and my first month on the job, someone came to me and said, is it true you could get pulled over for doing just five over the speed limit? And I'm like, well, it's the speed limit. There's a, it's a hard number. So technically, one over, nobody's going to really do that because why we've, we grade these laws, right? We're like, all right, even though it's here, we'll let you go to here. If you go downtown Nashville, because that's where I work, on, the presence, on any given night, you're going to see and smell the presence of marijuana. It's everywhere. It's still technically against the law. We've not made it legal in the state of Tennessee. But society has granted that is irrelevant, that it doesn't hurt anybody, so it's overlooked. Now, I'm not taking a side on that up here. I'm just saying it happens. I'm just throwing it out there. So remember that when I mentioned the definition of reconciliation in the beginning, that's what's happening with the Pharisees and the other legal examples I give. It's the second definition we mentioned of making one view compatible with another one. They had to reconcile their own heart of sin, so they began to pull the law down to a level that was attainable. And thus it elevated their righteousness, which would then meet the third monetary definition by ascribing themselves an equivalent value. The law demands this value, and per the standard of the law which I interpret, I meet this value, so now I am reconciled to God. We personally ascribe value to which man-made laws we must obey fully and which ones we choose to ignore. And that's because we've made our views compatible with the view of the law. 70 is a safe speed, but I'm an excellent driver, so I can still operate a vehicle safely at 80 miles an hour. So that one does not apply to me. As we do this with the law of God as a people, we start to elevate our own position. And then in doing that, we lower the position of God. If God is infinitely holy and our position is irreconcilable based on our ability to obey his perfect law, then we have to start bringing those two ends of the spectrum to the center in order to make ourselves feel better. So God becomes in the minds of people less holy 
and man becomes more and more righteous. And that is something that still happens today. So Christ had to come in and put the law back in the rightful place as the perfect and holy standard that God demands from us. For if we do as the Pharisees did, and as many do today, we think we can fulfill the law. We start to delegitimize the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So it must be acknowledged and upheld as holy and righteous. And as the perfect standard, read that, requirement of a holy God. This is why in chapter 3 of 2 Corinthians, Paul states the law was glorious. He does not negate the perfection of the law. He places the law in the proper context, and he tells us that as glorious as the law is, something comes with far surpassing glory. The letter, the law, was glorious, but the ministry of the Holy Spirit has a far surpassing glory. And even though he heard, holds the standard of the law up to be perfect and holy. Look what else he says about the law. It kills. He says in chapter 3, verse 6, the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Why does the letter of the law kill? Because it's the requirement placed on the believer. The law exposes the sin, which leads to death, as they said in Romans. Our death? Maybe. And by our, I mean a generic human. But for sure, in that system, the death of a sacrifice but let's keep reading. Because Paul's not going to give them that without giving them hope. Now, if the ministry of death, carved in letters of stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, how much or much more will what is permanent have glory? Now, you see what he's talking about? There's, there's hope. This is where he gives hope to the believer in contrasting the law with the gospel. The new glory found in the spirit far surpasses the glory and perfection of the law. So, let's take all of that, now that we've kind of examined that, and let's move back to our original starting point in chapter 5, where we see Paul talking about being reconciled to God. We've defined reconciliation using our own modern dictionary and also examining uh, the Greek word, and we found it's pretty much the same thing with only minor differences. We know we must be brought back into favor with God because of our transgressions, and we know that in order to settle our account, there must be an exchange of an equivalent value. Something must be offered that meets the perfection of the law. So now we know what this full reconciliation means, and we see the level of the account that must be reconciled, and we see the fulfillment of the law is not only difficult, but it's impossible to achieve in a satisfactory manner. And if I ended the sermon there, please run me out of this town and call me a heretic giving you the law but let's go back to the original passage back to chapter 5 verse 17 and we see what Paul writes therefore if anyone is in Christ he is a new creation the old has passed away and behold the new has come all of this from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation you see that he says he reconciled us that is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. 
God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. In verse 18, he says, we are reconciled to God through our own obedience? No, we are reconciled to God through Christ, through his obedience, through his perfection, and through his ultimate sacrifice and then we are given the ministry of reconciliation which is what obey the law and live no not at all he clarifies that in verse 19 he says that is in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us this message of reconciliation Our ministry of reconciliation is, as Paul had mentioned in Romans before, to preach Christ and to preach him crucified. The goal of Paul writing these letters was not to create better humans and better adherence to the law, but it was to strengthen faith. This is the mission that we have on the church with each other. It is to preach Christ and him crucified. It is to uphold the gospel of Jesus Christ and it is to equip equip the believers for this ministry. Ephesians tells us that if if we do this well, the church builds itself up in love. So we want to point you away from your own capacity and towards the finished work of Christ that he completed on the cross on your behalf. And let's take a final look at that and from this verse in verse 21 of our of our home passage in 2 Corinthians Paul writes for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God remember when we were talking about the sacrifice of the lamb and the lamb was brought before the priest and the sinner confessed his sins while laying ahead on the lamb to symbolically transfer the sins into the body of the lamb the lamb itself became the sin and was then punished accordingly. This is what he means when he says Christ was made to be sin. Something that can be overlooked sometimes about grace is the fact that sin still had to be punished. God's nature would not allow for an injustice against him to go without a consequence. If you see the grace of God as simply God turning the other way, then you missed the glory of what Christ did on the cross for us. In our example for law, of law enforcement earlier, if you're driving above the speed limit and you're pulled over and not issued a citation, certainly that's grace sort of as we understand it, right? But there's no justice. There's no one paying for your violation of the law. That is simply a law enforcement officer using his discretion not to write you a citation. However, the grace of God is not in the lack, or I'm sorry, yes, the grace of God is not in the lack of punishment because his very nature demands justice and this justice must be served. So there is punishment. The grace extended to Christians based on the, is based on the recipient of the justice for our sins. The grace of God imparted to us exists not in the removal of punishment, but in the fact that the Son stepped up in our place and took our punishment. Jesus Christ went to the cross willingly. He went without us asking. 
He went us without us even wanting it. We're defiant. We're sinners. We're enemies of God as we're defined in Scripture. His, God's holy wrath was satisfied when Jesus Christ went to the cross and took the penalty on our behalf. Justice was served through an unjust murder. And because of that, we no longer have to be slaves to the law. We have a new master. And we can now go on as slaves to Christ. And we serve that master out of a great gratitude. Don't get hung up on the word slave. It has such a negative connotation. But we serve Christ with gratitude. We also don't have to continually offer sacrifices for our sins. In the Old Testament, there was a constant returning to the altar in order to atone for the sins committed. Because of Christ, we don't have to do that. Your livestock is safe if you have livestock. Your children are safe if you want to go back to the example of Abraham of being asked to offer Isaac. Instead of this system, Jesus established the church. So remember I just mentioned the mission here. And when we function properly, we build ourselves up in love and we do that by bearing each other's burdens. And that's carried out through some of the different uh, midweek things that you guys do here with your home groups and Bible studies. We do it by gathering here each week, being reminded of Christ's sacrifice so that our faith as a body will be strengthened. And with the sacrifices done away, we're given ways to be encouraged and strengthened. And one of those is preaching and teaching of the word, which is what we're doing now. Another is the, the singing, the worship that was led so beautifully up here. And what's interesting is we're, as we're singing through the songs and I'm thinking through what I'm going to preach and, and I'm reading the lyrics and listening to the lyrics of the song and I, I go, they're stealing my thunder. Like all these lyrics are going right along with what I'm saying. And then arrogantly I go, did they plan that out? Because I sent them the passage ahead of time. And then, and then I thought, you idiot. Uh, if you're going to preach Christ and you want everything to point to the gospel, then your songs and your prayer of confession and your sermon are all going to line up because that's what we do as a church. So whether it was intentional or not, it's going to happen. And another way and that we're getting ready to do now is the partaking of communion, which we do on a weekly basis. But remember, we had in the, in the old days, they had to come and they continue sacrifice. And in communion, there are different context of religion that actually believe that is what is happening in communion that are re-sacrificing christ over and over transubstantiation it actually becomes the body and the blood that's not what we're doing here i'm going to let david come up in just a moment after i pray and he's going to explain a little bit more about what's happening in communion but that's what we do on a weekly basis in order to remind ourselves that we no longer have the weight of the law placed on us and that jesus christ has gone to the cross taken on the punishment for our violations so that we can live in service to him and that is glorious and i'll pray and then uh, david will come up and give you some instructions on communion heavenly father we're thankful for this congregation we're thankful for the opportunity to be able to come down and speak and and talk about your your son jesus christ and what he's done for us on the cross father may it May the weight of that never be lost on us uh, as, the, as the weight and the magnitude of what happened on the cross is diminished, Father. We can diminish what we think of you, Father, and allow us to constantly always put you in your holy and righteous place as the perfect creator uh, and the author of our faith and the one who purchased 
our lives through the death of your son. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.